My preaching schedule for this summer is going to focus on the future and the mission of Beach Haven Baptist Church. I uh, would prefer to preach on personal issues as a pastor, but I believe we need to set the table and uh, join together under the Word of God in forming a future for Beach Haven Baptist Church. And so in your worship guide today, you find a working vision statement and a working set of priorities. And I won't review those right now, but they are the background to the message this morning and the message is from the book of Acts where this morning in Acts 2 beginning in verse 37 uh, verse 36 we will uh, begin to read in just a moment but this is what we've got before us now I say I would prefer to preach on personal and pastoral issues I say that however cognizant of the fact that one of the greatest things that a pastor can do is lead a church to be the kind of church it should be for the people because that in and of itself is a great gift every breathing human being needs a great church not only a walk with Jesus Christ which indeed is significant and necessary and urgent and eternal but also a significant dynamic growing covenant relationship with a local church everyone needs a worthy church and it is our intention that Beach Haven Baptist Church be that kind of church for the whole region for everyone that is still breathing and that's our intention that in and of itself is a great gift and that reminds me of gifts in the 2013 Neiman Marcus catalog they advertised a 25 carat diamond and were charging 1.85 million dollars for that diamond. It reminds me of the couple about to celebrate their anniversary and the wife said, why don't we just get each other real practical gifts this anniversary? How about I get you the practical gift of socks and you get me a practical gift of diamonds. I think that'd be wonderful. <laughs> Everyone loves a gift. And in Acts chapter 2, Luke describes the Holy Spirit in terms of a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift according to verse number 38 and 39. And he says, the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you and all your children and all those who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And so the Holy Spirit himself is a gift, but the statement, the gift of the Holy Spirit can be understood another way. Not only the gift who is the Holy Spirit, but the very gifts that accompany the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came to permanently dwell with the followers of Jesus Christ for the first time in history, for the first time in history, he evangelized the lost world, he exalted the Savior, and he established a church, and in and of itself was a gift. The local church is a gift of God. And these verses, I think, will surface that here in this text. Luke then described the local church in terms of a gift that comes from the Holy Spirit. And that is because of what we find beginning in verse number 36 on down to verse number 37. The church is a gift from the Holy Spirit and I want to explain to you why. And the first reason is, is that it teaches. The local church is the only body in the world that will teach the word of God. Now Peter begins this really back beginning in verse number 14 but he gets to the heart of the matter in verse 36 and says let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ 
And when they heard this, they were perplexed and they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, for you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Here in this text, we find the early church being the only entity teaching the word of Christ. They do so in the sense that they evangelize unbelievers, and they instruct and edify those who are believers. Now it's interesting, there is a tight relationship in this text and in other texts between the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. In other words, it's not all Spirit and no Word. It's not all Word and no Spirit. It's not all fire and no light. It's not all light and no fire, but fire and light and Word and Spirit. Reminds me of what someone said, that in this day, if you have all Spirit and no Word, you'll blow up. If you have all uh, Word and no Spirit, you'll dry up. But if you have the Word and the Spirit, you'll grow up. And how necessary and important both a Spirit-empowered ministry with the Word is. In this, in this world, the only entity we can rely upon, and not always can we rely upon them to do so, but if anyone is going to teach the Word of God to the lost and to those who know Christ, it will be the local church. In other words, we're the only voice to tell Bruce he's really a Bruce and he's not a Caitlin and he'll make a big mistake if he becomes one. We're the only ones that we can rely upon to declare the message of eternity and to declare the message of salvation and holiness and mission and stewardship. In other words, it is the church and church alone we can rely upon to cast humanity's eyes that are diseased with the disease and syndrome of present-itis into the next life and the next world and say, you've got to deal with God and you've got to settle it with God. And the only hope for doing so is Jesus Christ. We're the only ones that will do it. We're much like Don and Moya Ritchie from Australia near Sydney. They own a home on a cliff. It's called The Gap. And for the more than 50 years that they lived there at that place, they would notice people walking towards the edge of the cliff, and some would throw themselves off. And Don would get up every morning and watch every evening for people coming to the cliff, and he would walk out to them and say, how about you come in and let's have a cup of tea? And over 50 years, he convinced 50 people not to throw themselves over the cliff. Australia awarded him with the Citizen of the Year Award. He was awarded with other awards and acknowledgments. But beloved, Don was doing precisely what we as the church do. Indeed, we need to be standing at the cliff telling the culture and our society as they edge closer to it. In fact, not just edge, but let's admit they're rushing towards it at breakneck speed. Don't go over the cliff. I also believe that when they do, we need to have an ambulance at the bottom to scoop them up and carry them on to healing. But that's what we do with the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit wanted there to be one place in the world, one place in the world that God could rely upon to declare the inerrant and truthful and life-transforming Word of God. And so He gave the world and gave us a church. But that's not all. The church not only teaches, but it's a gift because it remembers. The Lord's Supper 
and baptism are both mentioned in this text, in verse 41 and verse 42. It says that they gladly received His word and they were baptized, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, and breaking of bread. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're the only two ordinances that the Lord left with us, and that's why we practice them. Have you ever noticed that both of these cause us to remember one thing? Both the Lord's Supper and baptism have that in common. They call to remembrance one thing, and that is what? The death of Jesus Christ. He did not want us to forget or lose sight of the death of Christ. So in baptism, we do that. The candidate stands in the water and forms a, a cross as his or her body intersects with the water perpendicularly. And then we put them under momentarily and we bring them back up. So there's the cross, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that reminds the church of the death of the Lord. That's what takes place here in verse number 41. Now there's been unfortunately some confusion about baptism because of the English translation of verse number 38. The confusion's unnecessary, but it's very real, unfortunately. And Peter says here in verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And some will say, well, look there. There in the Bible it says, if you want to be forgiven of sin, you've got to be baptized. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. But that's not what the word for means. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so religious works don't factor into it. Let me ask you a question. If a student is cited for good grades, did they accept an award in order to make good grades? Or did they receive the reward because they made good grades? What's the cause and what's the effect? Well, they were cited for good grades. They were given an award for good grades because they earned good grades. So that's the meaning of the word for. A soldier is cited for bravery and courage and is given a medal. Well, are they given a medal so that they will be courageous? No, it's the other way around. They're cited for bravery. Here, Peter is using the word in the same way. Luke does earlier in Luke 11.32 where he says, Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Same word that's used here for for. Well, they didn't repent so Jonah would preach. I've never known anyone to do that at all. Instead, Jonah's preaching was the cause of their repentance. And then in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Paul was breathing threats because of the disciples. The same is true here for the disciples. And so the text is teaching here, repent and be baptized because of the forgiveness of sins. God has offered forgiveness of sins to the whole world. Therefore, repent and follow repentance with baptism. The forgiveness of sins is not the result of baptism. It's the cause of baptism. And the Bible nowhere knows of a Christian who has not followed Christ in baptism. And we'd love to do that for you today if you're serious about the Lord. And we'll follow him in serious membership in this local church. And then it goes on and says in verse 42 that they remembered the Savior by the breaking of bread. They were dramatizing the pain and suffering of Jesus at the cross. Now, is this not an interesting reference to the Lord's Supper in verse number 42? The breaking of bread. Now, what does the bread symbolize in the Lord's Supper? It symbolizes the, not the blood, but the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't it interesting, it uses the word here, break. 
for what happened to Jesus' body at the cross. Can you imagine the pain and the suffering you would endure if your body was broken? Can you imagine the hurt, the wound, the injury, the suffering, the agony, if your body was broken? Here in the text, they remember Jesus' death on the cross by breaking bread first. And they did that in order to remind the world and remind themselves that Jesus suffered for our sins. A lot of folks celebrate many different strange things. I read of a woman this past week who celebrated her divorce. Another one, of course, I don't know the fellow. Maybe there was cause. But in any case, some celebrate Friday. We celebrate the death of Jesus because no one else in the world will. And the Holy Spirit wanted there to be one place in the world that remembered the death of Jesus, and so He gave us the church. But that's not all. It says in verse 42, They devoted themselves constantly and steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. It's the word koinonia. It reminds me of the story of little Zachary sitting in his nanny's lap, his grandmother's lap. And he says, Nanny, I love you for everything. I, I love everything about you. I love your eyes. I love your ears. I love your nose. I love your whiskers. I love everything about you, Grandma. Oh, there's tremendous love. Whenever we love one another and have fellowship with one another, we embrace everything that a person is. Now, the word fellowship is oftentimes shortened and truncated and not quite understood among people. It's not very well defined. In the Greek translation of the Septuagint, in fact, in the Apocrypha, it is used for marriage. Marriage is called a fellowship. In Luke chapter 5, verse 10, the word koinonia is used for the business partnership that Luke and Andrew had in their fishing business. So a marriage and business partnership. Then in Philippians 4.4, 4, Paul used it for a missions offering. So a partnership in marriage and a partnership in the business and partnership in missions. And so fellowship is a partnership, a Christian partnership, in a serious relationship of one kind or another. A business or marriage or support of missions. In fact, the fellowship then, the relationship, the serious commitment we have to one another is to model the marvelous fellowship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are to model the Trinity. If the world ever becomes curious, or the church ever becomes curious, how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate, they should be able to walk into a place like this and see it instantly. With the love, and the service, and the deference, and the honor, and the preference given to one Another. This is what the early church did. And so, in the church of Jesus Christ, there should be the best relationships. In fact, the best marriages ever to be found. Now, I need to overthrow a very common and pernicious and discouraging myth that I think has seriously wounded nearly an entire generation of millennials. And that is that one out of every two marriages ends in divorce. And that Christians are just as bad. That is not true. And it never has been. Michael Lindsay of the Gallup organization explained in my hearing one day how Gallup itself had made a mistake in its survey, in its research. I won't go into all the complicated details of it, but essentially they counted the number of marriages in one year and then counted the number of divorces in one year and said, well, half of those ended in divorce, the number that is. But the problem is they didn't track the marriages that happened that year for subsequent years. Because people don't get married generally on a Saturday and divorce by Monday. 
was, was the confusing point. That statistic is not true. It's never been true. At worst, 60% of first-time marriages have always worked in America, and the figure is better among Christian people. And in fact, at that point in 2006, when Michael Lindsay was speaking to us at our retreat, he said he expected by 2010 for the trend to be 7 out of 10 first-time marriages working. Ladies and gentlemen, please be very careful about the demographers and so-called social researchers that you quote. There's one that does not have a degree of credentials who's probably the most popular one amongst them. Once in a while, he is correct, like a broken clock is right twice a day. But you need to check him out. And you know who I'm talking about. I won't tell you it's George Barna. The better person to read, the better person to read is somebody with an actual training degree in background. See, uh, Bradley Wright at the University of Connecticut is far, far better. In a very sweet and very kind and polite way, he's overthrown nearly everything the former fellow I've quoted has written. The Holy Spirit then wanted there to be one place in the world, one place in the world that would model the relationships in the Trinity, and so he gave us the church. And then there's prayer. The church is a gift because the church prays. Well, don't people outside the church pray? Well, they mouth religious words, but the only way to reach the Father in prayer is through Jesus Christ. We've got to come in His name. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to reach the Father is to reach Him on His terms. And the only way then to reach Him is through Jesus Christ. The church alone then is qualified to enter into the court with the protocol of heaven and approach the King of Kings, petitioning Him for needs, and thank God He answers prayer. Now, in this text, I want you to imagine for just a moment all the struggle and difficulty they are enduring. Back in chapter 1, they're dealing with the death of Judas and how brokenhearted they are over him. They're dealing also with the abandonment of Christ and how guilty they were for abandoning Jesus. They're also dealing with the mission to the world. In other words, they've got heavy burdens upon their shoulders. In chapter 2, verse 13, they've already, I mean, first out of the gate, the first day, within seconds of the Holy Spirit coming and them forming into a church, they're already accusing the church of being drunk. And then later on, subsequently, they will suffer all sorts of difficulties with governing authorities. And by chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 7, death of one of their own number. These are the burdens that are upon them, and God gave them prayer and the power of prayer. A number of years ago, I was very thankful. I'm very thankful always. But I lived in a neighborhood in Texas where our plots of land were about a quarter of an acre, so we were tightly squeezed in together in a subdivision. And for the most part, we had really good neighbors. We had on that street anywhere between 15 and 20 children in just a few houses there. That's what we had. And most of the children and families were lovely, but I got worried really, about five children and three families. And I saw that they were not going to be a very positive influence on mine and the others. So I put them on my prayer list and I said, God, I want to ask you, if they're not going to give themselves to Christ or be a positive influence, if there's nothing we can do, then sweetly and tenderly, without injuring them, move them. And within 12 months, every one of them did. 
Oh, that's a coincidence, you might say. But I've got to say to you, I've noticed that my coincidences increase as my prayers increase as well. It's remarkable how the two go together. Say what you want to, but beloved, I believe there's power in prayer. And the Holy Spirit wanted there to be one place in all the earth that could reach God in prayer, and so He gave us in the world the church. Then, fear. The church alone fears the Lord. There's an awful lot of confusion about this term, and it remains undefined for many people. But verse 43 says, Fear came upon every soul, because many wondrous signs were done through the apostles. Well, does fear mean that they were afraid of God as if they had rounded a corner and saw a rabid and hungry pit bull? No, that's not the meaning of the biblical word fear, usually. Psalms 33.8 is a verse to look at sometime. It it, equi- it, it, um, it uh, equalizes the term fear of the Lord with awe, standing in awe of God. To fear the Lord is to be in awe of Him, to be amazed by Him. In other words, you get into His worship and you're not casual, you're not bored, you're not, uh, you don't set Him aside, you're, you don't leave unimpressed. Your heart is so thrilled with the things of God and His multiplied majesties and His glories, that you're awed by Him. Jacob, in Genesis 25 and 28, gets before God, and God gives him great and abundant promises. He gives Jacob great and abundant promises, and promises him a blessed future, and reiterates the promise of Abraham to him. So it's a text where there's an awful lot of promise, and there's an awful lot of joy, and there's an awful lot of hope. And the Bible says that Jacob feared the Lord. So was he afraid of God? No, no, that's not what that means at all. What it means instead is that he was thoroughly impressed and moved and awed that this great God would make such gracious promises to him. And the scripture teaches that awe before God is the beginning of wisdom. And the Holy Spirit believes that the Trinity is so worthy of awe that we are to stand in awe of him, that he wanted there to be one place in all the earth that held the Lord in fear, and so He gave the world and gave us the church. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And then the church gives, verses 44 through 45. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Well, that makes sense. Many thousands of pilgrims came to Jerusalem for Pentecost. They didn't expect it, but they they were saved. 3,000 of them were saved. Some that lived in the city, some that lived far off in some of the nations in Acts 2, verses 9 through 11. Well, they had provisions to make the journey to Jerusalem. Maybe they traveled a week or two or a couple of months. I don't know. And then they would stay in Jerusalem for a week, and they had enough supplies for that week. And then they would journey back home, and it would take them a week or two or maybe longer. So they had just enough supplies and resources for a trip there, one week in Jerusalem, and then a trip back home. What they did not anticipate is that their one week in Jerusalem would turn into months, and they ran out of supplies. And so the Christians there in Jerusalem began to sell their property and pool their resources together to take care of this burgeoning church that had grown so that they would not starve and they would have their needs met and taken care of. And that's what's taking place in verses 44 and 45, and that supports them and strengthens them and fortifies them to communicate the gospel throughout Jerusalem. Well, the Holy Spirit wanted there to be one place in all the earth that would give to the Christian mission 
And so he gave us a church. In fact, there are many who believe that there would not be hardly any medical care or education on the continent of Africa if it had not been for Christian missionaries. And historically, they're correct. Then, they are the ones who worship. Verse 46 to 47. They continued daily with one accord in the temple. They worshiped on a daily basis in the temple. A lack of worship looks strange from here, and I'm sure it looks very strange from heaven, because these worship together every day. I suspect that when we come to a full knowledge of all things on the other side, I suspect that we're going to discover that it is this factor here that has annoyed and infuriated the enemy more than any other single thing. The Father decided that His Son Jesus Christ would be exalted above all, and I suspect that Lucifer became insanely, satanically jealous over Christ. And it is the one thing that the kingdom of darkness fears more than anything else. It, it can't stand it. It can't tolerate it. It can't abide worship of Jesus Christ. But I've got news for the kingdom of darkness. We intend on lifting him up anyway. And the Holy Spirit wanted there to be at least one place in all the earth he could count on to lift up the name of Jesus like all of heaven does and to model the glory and the majesty and the exaltation of Christ taking a place around that throne now. And so he gave us and gave us the world, the church, that we might exalt his matchless name. Beloved, make no mistake about it. The church is a gift from the Holy Spirit to us in the world. Now, what am I to do with this gift? Let me encourage you to do a few things. Number one, receive it. Receive it. I'll never forget the day when I walked into Sherry Michelle's presence with a velvet-covered box and handed her an engagement ring. You know, she had a premonition a couple hours before that I was somewhere purchasing it. And I was. And I came in and handed her that engagement ring. And every day since we've been married, she wakes up and goes Donna Fargo and sings, I'm the happiest girl in the whole USA. <laughs> that was a gift. I want to say to you, that gift was nothing like the gift I got a few moments later when she said yes. That was a great gift. What's the, what's the best gift you've ever received? What's the, most, what's the most marvelous gift you've ever received? Can you imagine? Do you remember the anticipation? I mean, you looked over under the tree or on the table and you saw it there. You knew that was for you and your mind began racing. And you could just imagine what it would be. Even if you filled out a list and told people what you wanted, and they inquired, you were still thrilled about receiving it. Beloved, the church is a gift, and we are to receive the church in the same spirit and have the same heart and the same spirit in receiving the church as a gift. It's better than an engagement ring. It's better than a yes to a proposal as marriage. As important as those things are, the church is a gift of the Holy Spirit. We receive it as a gift. But there's a second thing. We not only receive it, but I want you to look with me in Acts chapter 17 for the second thing. Acts chapter 17. Paul is preaching in the synagogue of Thessalonica, and some take a stand for Jesus Christ there after he explains and demonstrates 
that Christ, from the Old Testament, that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And he said in verse 3, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And here's the response in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Well, he goes on, and he preaches in Athens, Greece. And in verse 34, he extends the invitation, calls everyone to repent, in verse 30. And the response is verse 34. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The second thing to do with the church is to join the church. Joining the church is a biblical concept where we formally and intentionally become part of a local body of believers. Oh, there are marvelous benefits to that. Number one, you get to identify with some of the best Christians in the community. Number two, you put yourself on the line. You imply by joining that you are a Christian, that you are now a serious member of that local church, and that gives you a measure of accountability. And no one really follows Jesus fully without some kind of accountability. It's profoundly necessary. And then, not only do you put yourself on the line, but the church does too. They know that you want to be here, and they get behind you. A third benefit happens to be that uh, you, um, uh, you end up communicating to the church, I approve of you. I believe the Lord is in your midst. I believe God wants us here. And you, you state, I approve of you. The church then also approves of you. There's a mutual affirmation that takes place. The fourth benefit is you get to follow the New Testament pattern. The Scripture does not know of an unbaptized Christian, and the Scripture does not know of a Christian without a church home. You get to follow the New Testament pattern. Now, here at Beach Haven, what we require for membership is simply what the New Testament requires. Number one, that you know Christ as Savior. Number two, that you have followed Him in baptism after that salvation experience and done so by immersion. If you haven't done either of those, we will be glad to help you with that and bring you along in Jesus Christ. And the final thing Beach Haven wants you to do is go through a new members training course and commit yourself to the church covenant. Ladies and gentlemen, that is it. We are to join the church. So receive it, join it, but then cherish it. Cherish it. The Bible in Ephesians 5.29 compares Jesus Christ and his relationship to the church to the relationship between husband and wife. What a lovely picture that happens to be. Because it says that a husband, in Ephesians 5.29, is to nourish and cherish his wife. Nourish and cherish his wife. Then, it says, as Christ also does the church. What a remarkable thing. The husband, obviously, is to nourish and cherish his wife. But that is modeled upon the relationship Christ has with the church. And that text says that Christ himself cherishes the church. In other words, Jesus Christ is not casual about the church. Her welfare is not a distant, disinterested reality. It is something that is on his heart. He is thrilled with the church. He cherishes the church like parents cherish their children, like husbands cherish their wives and wives cherish their husband. In other words, there's a unity there where 
where the church is always on his mind and always on his heart. He nourishes and cherishes the church. And you know, whatever it is that you cherish, you'll support. And that's what Christ does. He nourishes and cherishes his church. And for that reason, oh, it's profoundly important that when the body of Christ gathers together, like we're gathered today, that every member be present when we gather, unless providentially hindered. If we don't, we run into several potential dangers. I want to quickly mention six of them. One, when we do not attend the church, when the body gathers, we miss out on God's primary plan for growing us spiritually. Number two, we disobey God. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Third, the world, if you don't attend, will misunderstand your actions. They will think that you don't believe Jesus is worthy of obedience and worship, and they'll be discouraged from following Him. That's not what you want to do, and that's not what you're trying to do, but that's the message that they get. Number four, if you do not attend church, you will not be able to minister to the people that are here. You completely miss them. Number five, you missed a foretaste of the glory that is to come in heaven. This is something of a preview of the marvelous glory of heaven. Trust me, the preaching will be better, but the music can't get any better than what we've got here at Beach Haven. But that's what we've got. We've got a foretaste of glory divine. And then the sixth danger and challenge that you run into when you don't attend is that you miss an opportunity to again walk with Jesus and be like Him. Because in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, as corrupt as the synagogue was, as murderous as it was, as responsible as those in the synagogue were for the death of Jesus, it was His custom to attend the synagogue. Through my years in denominational work, I participated in inviting speakers and singers for large meetings. And we were careful and very circumspect in who we invited. Some, I hate to say, impressed me as being rather worldly in their expectations. There were some that would only come if they were guaranteed five or $10,000. There were some singing groups whose list of demands for the green room were so particular and picky, we didn't have time to put up with that. I wanted to write them back and say, just stop by Walmart before you get here and turn in the receipt. It was really annoying. But for them to come to our conference, they had a long list of demands, but Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus has taken the expectation of his presence and placed it just as low as you can get. He says, if you can get the smallest crowd possible, one's, one is not a crowd, it's an individual. Two is a crowd, or three. You get it that low, I'm coming. I'm going to be there. And I want to say to you, if Jesus Christ finds it that easy to get into the local church, how about those who are blood-bought by Him, who trust in and hope in His resurrection and in his second coming and his return. Now, if you're providentially hindered, we certainly understand that. Don't beat yourself, yourself up with guilt. But please, whatever you do when the body of Christ gathers on Sundays and Wednesdays, in revival meetings and conferences, do not find yourself sitting in front of a television. Oh, please do not do that. It's okay if you're at another Bible conference. Otherwise, be with the people of God. 
Now, one of the frustrating things about gifts that I have experienced through the years is that I would receive mechanized gifts that didn't come with batteries. In fact, sometimes I would not discover that the mechanized gifts we gave to our children did not have batteries that accompanied them till about 11 o'clock December 24th. Is there any more tragedy than that? Ladies and gentlemen, the tribulation is going to be a bunch of mechanized gifts without batteries. I am sure that will be an element of it. And I can think of a few other things as well. But that's the frustrating things about gifts, is that you've got this gift that can perform and entertain as it can, but no power in it. I want to tell you, the church is a gift, but it's not without power. It's not without batteries. The truth is, what God has given to the church is the most explosive power in all, uh, in all the world, in all the earth, in all of heaven, all of earth, and that is the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And you can get in on that power if you'll repent and believe the gospel. If you'll leave behind whatever's keeping you from the will of Christ and trust the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone, God says you can have the power and the church will become meaningful. Now, some of you are kind of worried that the church is kind of boring and a take-it-or-leave-it kind of affair to you. And you wonder, why do these people get so cranked up about this? You know, I used to feel that way myself. I did. In fact, sometimes I had more excitement about Jesus outside the church than I did inside the church. It wasn't much. I don't want to exaggerate. But I, I didn't understand why the people wept at the reading of the Bible. I didn't understand all the vigor and enthusiasm for the Sunday school class. I, I didn't understand why they lifted their voices with such intensity when we sang. And why, why, why there were some shouts of amen scattered across the congregation. When the invitation was given, why they buried their face in tears and wet the carpet with their tears. And then, when I was 16, I met Jesus and I understood. <laughs> when I came to Christ, I finally understood. Now, that's not to say I can explain it all, but coming to Jesus Christ and giving your life to Him does a marvelous work of revolution in your heart and soul when it comes to the church. Do you know there are people in this church family that have walked with the Lord and some that have just recently met Him that wouldn't want to be anyplace else? I mean, what takes place at Turner Field, what takes place in the Bulldog Stadium doesn't come anywhere near thrilling them as much as a simple worship service like this does. Why? Because in worship, we take the connection that you have and you have and you have and you have with Jesus Christ and we unify it and it electrifies and thrills and lifts everyone up to where we think the rapture must be about to happen. That's what it's like to get into His presence. And perhaps the reason you're so bored and casual about church attendance is you yourself are not connected to Him. Go ahead and admit it. Admit you're bored. Admit you're too casual. Set that behind. Leave that behind. And embrace Jesus Christ for all He is in humility. And God will change you. Let's pray about it. Father, I want to ask that you do a neat work by the Holy Spirit in hearts and lives today. I pray that 
Lord, you would convince us and persuade us by your word and spirit that our local church is a gift from heaven. Help friends as they decide for Jesus Christ, as they decide for Beach Haven Baptist Church, as they serve. And in all of this, Father, we want to have the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to thank you personally for what the church has meant for me and for my family. I thank you that so many of the adults here are surrogate grandparents for my children. And through the years, they've really been parents to me. And I appreciate so much how they've raised us up. I thank you for the enthusiasm. I thank you for the decades of faithfulness. I thank you for the occasional rebukes. I thank you for the constant affirmation. And I want to pray that friends today would avail themselves of this marvelous gift of the local church by turning to Jesus Christ, following him in baptism, or if they've done that, uniting with Beach Haven today. Would you make it so? Now our staff are going to be standing here at the front. And as we sing, we want you to come. Friends will step out of the way. We do this all the time. This is what we do around here. What we're attempting to do right now is give you the practical help you need to follow Jesus and to do his will. So we'll stand and sing. And as we do, you just step out from where you are. If you're in the middle, they'll move out of the way. That's no big deal. Don't be embarrassed by that. And you come and you tell this staff member your need, what you need to do today. And we'll help you. Would you quickly stand with me, please? I'm going to finish my prayer.